Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm your host, Monica Black. As you know, at New Books in History, we scour the globe for exciting new history books the world needs to know about, and we interview their authors. And today I have the pleasure of speaking with Benjamin Bryce. Uh, Benjamin Bryce has written A History of Belonging. It's called To Belong in Buenos Aires, Germans, Argentines, and the Rise of a Pluralist Society. It was published very recently, this year, in fact, by Stanford University Press. And I first saw it in Stanford University Press's catalog. So if if Stanford University Press is wondering whether anyone looks at their catalog, I can assure them that that is the case. Um, The book describes a period from the 1880s to the 1930s when a massive wave of immigration transformed Argentine society and the country's cultural landscape. Benjamin Bryce describes how, alongside the leaders of many immigrant enclaves in Buenos Aires, Germans, too, created ethnic spaces in an effort to maintain the pluralism, Benjamin Bryce says, that their own migration had given rise to. German immigrants built institutions to do that, many different kinds, from orphanages to hospitals to schools, and they became loyal Argentine citizens, even as they maintained a connection to German culture. But even as German Argentines strove to maintain their their own sense of particularity, their Spanish-speaking spouses and children sometimes opposed them, as did German socialists, German-speaking Catholics, and, as Benjamin Bryce puts it, many others who all struck their own balance between community and the broader Argentine world they had joined. Uh, Benjamin Bryce's book fits into the burgeoning field of migration history, and there have been a number of really terrific books recently that have dealt specifically with German migration. It's an important and a timely topic, of course. Migration is generating tremendous political energy throughout today's world, certainly in the Americas and in today's Germany, too. So, Benjamin Bryce, or I'll call you Ben. Ben, thanks so much for agreeing to appear on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's a delight. And I I really appreciated and, and enjoyed reading your book very much. I think I told you that uh, in addition to being a German historian, I'm also very much interested in the history of Latin America and uh, and Argentina in particular. So this was a real treat for me. Um, I wonder if we could start, please, by uh, asking you to talk about your biography, whether your sort of scholarly background or um, any sort of details you'd like to fill in for listeners, particularly perhaps uh, the question of how you came to this project. I, so I'm an assistant professor at the University of Northern British Columbia. That's uh, in uh, central British Columbia, about 800 kilometers north of Vancouver. Uh, I've been there for uh, four years now. And uh, I did my PhD, finished uh, five years ago at York University in Toronto. Um, I came to this project through a sort of a combination of 
personal experiences and then some graduate school uh, shaping, I would say. Uh, when I was 17, I spent a year in Argentina on a rotary exchange. And that was my first contact with with Argentina, my first contact with Latin America. Actually, it was the, uh, the first country outside of Canada, the United States that I visited. Uh, and that got me interested right from the beginning. I was already interested in history in, from high school and sort of just got increasingly interested in Argentine history. So when, when I then uh, didn't start my undergraduate degree at the University of British Columbia, uh, I took Latin American history, Latin American studies, and, and, and German history as a side note, uh, and sort of just got interested in, in learning more about uh, Argentine history. Uh, and then for a series of paths that, lives, that life takes, I ended up uh, moving to Germany right after my, my undergraduate degree, like five days after I, I finished classes or, or finished final exams, and spent a summer first in Schleswig-Holstein right on the Danish border, uh, and then moved to Berlin for the next 11 months. And so I spent about 15 months in Germany, uh, became uh, quite interested in, in, in Germany, uh, having already learned Spanish, learned about learning languages in Argentina. Uh, I did well with German and then sort of thought, how can I merge these two personal and personal interests and also then my personal or an intellectual uh, interest in the histories of these two places. Uh, and as you've said, and I think we all notice, uh, migration, multiculturalism are things that are really uh, pertinent in today's society or at the time in 2006 society uh, when I was starting graduate school. And I thought of how, how I can have a, a, pro, a graduate project that would sort of connect these two interests. So um, I decided to do an MA thesis, starting with an MA thesis, in Canada, there was separate degrees. You'd apply for an MA, and that could be the end of it after the MA, terminal MAs. Uh, and uh, I decided to come up with so the project I'd proposed and ended up writing uh, was a focus on a comparison of German identity in both Argentina and Canada, focusing on Buenos Aires and Ontario, so the two largest parts of, of, of these two countries that both have a long history of migration. Uh, and there was already, I was connecting also to another historiography of comparing Argentine and Canadian uh, development or, or changes in this time period, 1880s to 1930s. There's been other comparative books written about wheat and, and things like that. And then migration came up um, as as a part of a broader economic history of these very similar paths of, if you sort of look at data, uh, rail, kilometers of railroads, uh, wheat production, wheat exports, uh, population numbers, all these sort of demographic economic things that kind of unite the two countries in ways uh, if you compare it to anywhere else in the Americas, these two countries on the north and south, southern ends of the continent that have a lot in common. Uh, and immigration came up, but just sort of as a, a factor, not a, not, a study of, not a study of cultures of immigration, not a social history of, of immigration. And so that seemed like a void. That's got me into the, the project. Uh, it gave me uh, another reason to go back to Germany. So in the second year of my MA, uh, I actually did a graduate exchange from New York University to the, to the Freie Universität uh, and worked on my, uh, my MA thesis in Germany, but for my Canadian degree, uh, and, and ended up writing this, uh, uh, a narrow focus on is comparing two uh, German language newspapers from Canada and Argentina. And then that brought me to the PhD. So that's the background that got me interested in, uh, in this topic. Uh, and uh, uh, it's, it's been a fun ride. It's a very interesting story that you just told. And in fact, um, even though you and I have never met in person, um, we seem to have many overlapping interests and maybe even strange uh, common life experiences, one of which is that I too have lived in Schleswig-Holstein and very near the Danish border in a little place called Lech Klintum. Do you know where that is? 
uh, I don't think so. I probably have driven through it, but it doesn't ring a bell. I lived in Nibul, uh, uh, the last train stop before going to Zult. That's where I lived. Yes, I attended the... In a town of 8,000. How big was your town? No, no, no. Much smaller than Nibul. Um, I actually, I attended the gymnasium for one year in Nibul. And like Clinton was a little... In the Friedrichshausenschule? Sorry? The Friedrichshausenschule? I, I worked, that's what brought me to, to that town, uh, your high school. I worked there as a language assistant for four months. Uh, in my, that was my first time living in Germany. So we've been to the same school. That is amazing. That's quite a, that's quite a coincidence. Um, well, fantastic. So I'm glad to have this. I'm glad that we have this connection. So let's, let's talk a little bit more now in, in a little more detail about your book. Uh, I wonder if maybe one way of, of, of getting started on the particulars of the book is if you would please lay out for the listeners, um, the folks who are enjoying our podcast, the story that you tell in the book, uh, where, where you get started, uh, what sorts of topics you pursue, and where you end up in the book, just sort of giving everyone an overview. So it's a, a study of various ways that people... Uh, engage with their ethnicity and engage with their ideas about citizenship and belonging uh, in Buenos Aires. And so it's a focus on immigrant adults uh, trying to navigate between their own interests of ethnicity, community, and and uh, belonging or identity and their connection to the place they came from or the place they live in. Uh, but also it has a strong focus on two other groups, which are um, uh, not homogeneous groups, but uh, Argentines who have opinions about immigration, uh, quite often negative ones or uh, concerns about immigration, and then the children of uh, of these immigrants. Um, and, try, and the book tries to really put in the foreground either children's agency or children's ideas and children's uh, power to to influence community development or influence the idea or the sort of influence cultural pluralism uh, or how adults talked about uh, children's agency or influence over these things. So it's often not children's voices, but still the focus on how adults are talking about children as central actors in, in this broader history of immigration, which is something that uh, is not often done in, in lots of social, social histories of migration. Uh, and so it, it charts this history. It's a thematic approach in the book, uh, focusing on three main themes of education religion and uh, social welfare uh, and because in my view when i in discovering this in the sources it seemed to me that these are the central things that made up communities so rather than clubs or singing societies or sports associations or if there were a german football team or something like that the things that really got the numbers of people got the money got the talk got the discussions in newspapers uh, were these community institutions of education, religion, and social welfare uh, institutions such as hospitals or orphanages and uh, work placement associations and things like that. And uh, so it's focusing on these things that I would say are the most important features of a German community in Buenos Aires in the turn of the 20th century. And I would say also based on other newer research I'm doing, also the central features of most other uh, ethnic communities in Buenos Aires in that time period, the things that really um, mo- motivated people to get involved in community and the things that outside observers would see as the markers of community. Uh, and it looks then at uh, how people uh, over this 50-year period from 1880 to 1930 navigated between um, an interest in, that, in community, an interest in ethnicity, and an interest in Argentina. And one point I make is that uh, even though they're doing very ethnic things like trying to make sure that children speak German uh, or trying to uh, sort of preserve some sort of idea of a, a separate German community, if you look at what they're doing inside those institutions, there's lots about those institutions that are very Argentine. So even though it's it's not sort of an, uh, 
a normative uh, homo or sort of a standard, a homogenized vision of what a Hispanic Argentine nation should be. And the vision of the people who are participating in these activities, they think they're still, uh, and, and they want to be doing something that's Argentine. So they, uh, they're not, in their mind, not undermining their Argentine belonging by also uh, encouraging children to speak German. And in fact, and this is an argument that uh, other historians have made, particularly uh, Jeffrey Lesser and Ranan Rain, um, that in, in those in Latin America, those in Argentina and Brazil in particular, who, who saw themselves as ethnic uh, they would often make this argument that the best way to be the best Argentines or the best Brazilians since they happened to be ethnic was to embrace that ethnic difference. And so um, if they hadn't been of German heritage and if, if they were something else, they'd, they should be in, in, pushing the, a different kind of dualism. But since they happened to be German, uh, the best way to be the best possible Argentines was to embrace both that Germanness and that Argentineness at the same time. And, and rather than uh, uh, forgetting their, the, their European contribution to Argentine society, they should set embraces. So this is sort of looking at these ideas of this group of, of immigrants and their children uh, in uh, embracing that sort of, I mean, it, 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 academically you call it embra- being examples of their hybridity, but they would often see it as, as em- embracing or fostering their duality. Uh, and they would be both 100% Argentine and 100% German at the same time. Uh, and so it's a it's a study of, of how this evolves over time in this era of mass migration. Argentina, the the, the fifty years from eighteen eighty to nineteen thirty are these very trans, transformative uh, years uh, in Argentine history. Uh, after which, then things uh, slow down quite a lot in the nineteen thirties and nineteen forties. And it situates in German immigration in this broader context of Argentine Argentine migration history and Argentine migration historiography. Uh, and in so doing, as a side note. Uh, it also situates it within Argentine dates and Argentine periods and, and draws parallels to other groups in Argentina rather than situating it in German historiography in the sense of, you know, my end date's not 1933, my end date's 1930, because that's the end date that every other book about Argentina, my migration to Argentina is about rather than uh, obviously a key date in, in German history. So it's sort of thinking of how migration, which happens to be German, uh, uh, is related to a broader Argentine history of cultural pluralism and, and migration. This is this is very interesting because you do a lot of you do a lot of uh, very good work I think in the book on ethnicity and its plurality and I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about um, you you I'm just going to quote from you know short quote that you from the introduction of your book where you describe ethnic categories as and I think this is exactly right as situational overlapping and contradictory. And indeed, what it means even to be German in your book is quite plural itself. I wonder if you could talk about that just a little bit. I'm sorry, actually, the last five seconds of what you said uh, cut out for me. As you said that its ethnic categories are situational, overlapping, or contradictory. And then I lost you for a second, and I think uh, I've, I'm not actually sure what your question was. Oh, I'm sorry. No, that's okay. So you describe ethnic categories as, as situational, overlapping, and contradictory, and then... Uh, I thought it was interesting that actually what it means to be German in the book table, and I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit about the situationalness, if you will, of of Germanness in in Argentina. Right. So uh, just to give you some sort of examples of of this, uh, which I found something I found quite interesting. So uh, someone could be German, and what it means to be German is that uh, they're Argentine citizens. They've never been to Germany, uh, and they speak Spanish perhaps better than they speak German uh, or they speak them equally well or they speak them uh, more or less equally well overall but they're 
better at talking about uh, cinema, economics, and government in Spanish, and better at talking about food, love, and um, uh, everyday life, life in German. So they're or, or equally good at, at some of those some of those many ways of, of how language works. Um, and but they call themselves German, and people around them call them German. So that makes them. German in many ways, but it doesn't necessarily make them German the same way that someone who has never left uh, Berlin uh, German. They both think of themselves and are identified by others as German, but it doesn't necessarily mean the same thing to be German in, in Argentina as it does to be German in in Germany, let alone what it would mean to be German in, say, Canada, the United States. Um, and at the same time, um, that person, though, uh, perhaps uh, one, one example, there's this uh, uh, female protagonist, uh, uh, one of the few female leaders of some of the institutions I study, uh, she uh, led, from, she was the president of, for some years, the German women's home, women's home in Buenos Aires, which was interested in, in migrant women and sort of uh, in, in uh, creating a sort of idea of a German respectability by helping working class German women uh, behave in certain ways and not behave in other ways. And at the same time, she was an Argent, so she was Argentine born and studied actually in Switzerland, but her father was a German immigrant. So at the same time, though, she was the president of the Argentine National Association against white slavery. So a, a, that's an early 20th century movement against uh, sort of perceptions of, of female prostitution and migration and female prostitution. And so at many times in her life, this woman was not at all German. She was uh, an Argentine feminist. She's in, in Argentine uh, history. She can be talked about as an Argentine, an early Argentine feminist uh, with a distinct European background than some people, but there was lots of people with distinct European backgrounds. And... Uh, in any way, she and obviously, I think when people spoke to her, they didn't think of her as a non-native speaker of, of Spanish. So this woman, many times, took on a, uh, a non-German or non-ethnic identity and just behaved as an Argentine feminist in the early 20th century. But then at other times, she goes to a, a, an ethnic association where she's also, in, in different years, a leader of that association and a financial contributor for a longer period of time, uh, and is very interested in the Germanness of her institution, interested in, in fostering a certain idea of a German community and engaging uh, for hours of the day with German-speaking peoples and German-speaking migrants in Argentina. So at different times, she's putting on different hat, hats. So that's something that's situational about her ethnicity, and in many ways, her, her German ethnicity played, I would say, very a very small role in, at some of the time when she was engaged in these broader uh, Argentine uh, political debates. But at other times, her Germanist was, was a central factor of why she participated in in uh, German language institutions in the city. And you could, I could, you have other examples of this of children uh, when they're at a German school. Uh, their Germanist is sort of, you know, like a lot of other kids at the school. They have one or two German parents, and they have some sort of German Argentine identity. But then when they get their first job, or then they go to an Argentine university, because that's what the majority of kids who went to German schools did, they go to an Argentine university, they might downplay their 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 ethnic difference. And so in a sense, there's uh, a situational ethnicity that their their ethnicity at, at university when they're 22 years old, or when they're in a relationship when they're 25 years old, is that, you know, no, they're Argentine, they're Spanish speakers, but even though they have these other things that they can do at other times, they're not doing those, uh, they're not claiming those are part of their their identity or their everyday experience at other times in, in their lives. It's really interesting. Uh, you looked at a, I wonder if you can, you, you said a few minutes ago, or you, you've been speaking here and there about the various social institutions, or maybe we could even say social practices through which a pluralist Argentina was created. I wonder if you can talk a little bit more in a little bit more detail about what these 
institutions were. I mean, you've mentioned some of them, institutions of social welfare, for example, and schools. But I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about, and I was very interested, by the way, when you described very briefly at the beginning of your comments, you described very briefly why you thought it was important to have chosen these uh, particular kinds of institutions. But I wonder if you can speak a little bit more about both of those things, both the plurality of institutions that you chose to examine and why you chose those. Right. And I think part of your question is about uh, Buenos Aires more broadly in, in this time period. And so, so the city that uh, grows from 169,000 169, people uh, in, in 1869 to uh, 1.2 million in 1910. And by 1936, it has about 2.4 million people. So it goes from a town, a very peripheral part of Spanish America in many ways, to the second largest city on the Atlantic coast of the Americas after New York. Uh, it's a, a, city, a massively transformed, largely by immigration. There's also internal migration and, and internal demographic change, but uh, immigration, almost all of which comes from Europe, although there are important, uh, or there are there is also other immigration from uh, East and South Asia and and the Ottoman Empire, which de- depending on the time period in Argentine history, that is or is not called European immigration. Uh, and so there's all told there's about the population of the country in, in 1869 is 2 million people and then 6 million immigrants arrive and the population of the country in 1914 is 8 million people. Not all those immigrants are what make that population change, but it's because some go back, but there's a massive influx of immigrants. Uh, in the city of Buenos Aires in 1914, 50% of the people who live in the city were born somewhere else. So 50% of the people in the city are immigrants. And what's not usually talked about in that very often used statistic in Argentine history is that if you pay attention to the children of those immigrants who also are engaging in, in I mean, sort of naturally part of a culturally plural society because their parents are immigrants, uh, that number is more like 70% of people in the city uh, have have something, that, a very easy access to ethnicity. They're either uh, immer- they're immigrants themselves or they're, they're living with someone who is an immigrant or they were raised by someone who's an immigrant. So this is a city... Uh, this is a, a, to use a modern term, this is a multicultural city, one of the most multicultural cities you'll ever find. At the same time, you have this uh, nascent state apparatus that uh, it's a wealthy state, it's a wealthy society. Uh, the state's uh, this liberal state, there's liberal reformers trying to get a hold of the massive development and the massive immigration is one, con- one concern that they have, the, how, the, how the nation is being transformed by immigration. Uh, and uh, they're creating institutions to sort of develop, to make their society, you could say. And one big thing is is uh, through universal public education uh, and also things though, like creating hospitals or building streetcars or um, building public or improving networks of public water or, or um, uh, sewage and things like that. So there's a sort of transforming society. And within that transforming society and the creation of all these new institutions for the booming uh, metropolis um, are these institutions that are run by immigrants and uh, one, on one hand, it's, they're being run by immigrants because immigrants, I think, see institutions as a way to, to create communities. And they think it's sort of they're doing their part in, in a society that's, that they want to be culturally plural. And so the way that you make it culturally plural is you, you carve out a place for ethnic communities in this broader society. And since things are, are changing so quickly, the Argentine state, in many ways, is happy to let this happen. So they have bigger fish to fry than to, to say, no, we're going to be the only institution that plays a role in creating hospitals or public health. Uh, uh, and so the Argentine state is allowing space for other actors along with those other interest groups as well, the Catholic church, uh, private philanthropy is also playing a role in, in this society. But because it's undergoing such massive transformation, 
I think it's one of the reasons why immigrants are able to carve out a space for, for themselves. And these, so these are many groups that are doing this in Germans. If you look at what, what German immigrants are doing and, and then you uh, look at what Italian immigrants are doing or what Syrian immigrants are doing, they're all doing very similar things. And so this seems to tell you something uh, not only about what, about German ethnicity or German identity, but it tells you something about how immigrants and the broader society are interacting. And, and so, uh, as I mentioned, there are these, I would say, core institutions of community uh, and core institutions that sort of are the ones that also are engaging with the broader society in a sense, like making schools or making a hospital or making a German or a British cemetery or um, uh, a, a, a work placement agency for German immigrants or a work placement agency for Italian immigrants or making a mutual aid society, which is a bit like an insurance a uh, sort of nonprofit insurance association, for health insurance association. Uh, these, these, this is something that uh, Italians and, and Spaniards and Catalans and Basques and French and British and Germans uh, and Ukrainians and Jews, uh, that all sorts of groups are doing. Uh, and uh, that this creates an, a culturally plural society. If you just walk down the street, you'll see institutions with uh, names that uh, are, are marking this, this, uh, this cultural pluralism. And, and then it's, uh, that are sort of representatives of a, a community behind behind those kinds of institutions, uh, and uh, this plays, I, I would say, it has a transformative impact on Buenos Aires society from the time that this really uh, erupts in the 1880s, uh, and then it starts to take a different form in the mid 20th century, from the 1930s to the 1960s, uh, in that state institutions become more more important in terms of say membership numbers, how many people are involved in either state or ethnic institutions that that the balance between the two starts to shift towards the state and away from ethnicity. Uh, and then, but these things still exist today with, with far fewer members. Um, some have gone up, some have closed or others have transformed uh, in the same way that a, a, a society that after waves of immigration uh, transforms. So say there are fewer German schools today in Buenos Aires than there were 80 years ago. And those German schools are not serving or serving very few children um, of German-speaking immigrants. Uh, they are serving some people with some sort of German identity that have a German-speaking grandparent uh, or maybe even great-grandparent or serving Argentines who think that uh, having access to, to German language education to some sort of level of bilingualism uh, is an important thing. And then the same thing you could say about an Italian school or a French school in, Argent in Buenos Aires as well, that they are, they've sort of gone with the times. Some of them have gone with the times and transformed to serve different kinds of people and different kinds of interests uh, in society and others have closed or, or greatly reduced their, their, their numbers or their, the impact that they have on, on broader groups of people. Yeah, that's, that's very fascinating. Um, and you laid that out really beautifully. Uh, I wonder if, um, actually it's funny that you said cemeteries because I have a particular interest in cemeteries and I was, I was actually looking around on the internet just to see if, um, why, it was during the time that I was reading your book, actually, I was, I started thinking about other kinds of, uh, other kinds of cultural institutions that people set up when they immigrate to other places. And one of the places, of course, that occurred to me was cemeteries. And so it was interesting that you said that. And I also, my grandparents, my father's parents, um, ended up emigrating again after they lived in Argentina for a long time, they ended up uh, living the rest of their lives in Quito in Ecuador. And I recently had the experience of going to visit my grandparents who were Hungarians graves in, in the Cementerio Aleman. So, which looked beautifully and amazingly like 
almost any German cemetery I've ever seen in Germany. Yeah, um, so we spontaneously discovered during live recording that uh, we've both been to the same school, one for one as a student and one as a, a student teacher uh, in Schleswig-Holstein. Uh, and I actually already knew you had an academic interest in, in cemeteries. And this is actually something I've never published on, but um, something that I think is also centrally uh, interesting and important and actually a very in- innovative way to understand ethnicity in whether it's Buenos Aires or more broadly, uh, in Latin America. So I've also been to a German cemetery in Sao Paulo. Uh, the, uh, the central argument in my book is that uh, people organized community and people cared about ethnicity because they were thinking about the future. Uh, and so in studies of migration, uh, there's a, a tendency to, to talk about the past. So immigrants themselves are talking about the past. They talk about their homeland, where they came from. Um, the, we're, we're, we really care, migration historians really care about the past the place someone was born, because that's how we're sort of putting them into categories that uh, whether whatever their nationality is in terms of what passport they carry, uh, that might be one thing, but the nationality of their birth, so therefore their their past is what seems to be the, our category of analysis. But when you're, when the things that garner so much community attention and newspapers, so much money, so much membership, their active involvement in an institution is say a school, uh, and then in that school they talk about making sure we give them their German cultural heritage, access to their German cultural heritage, and a proper upbringing as Argentine citizens where they will spend their future. Uh, these are being, this suggests to me that people are at least as interested in their future as in their past. And to take that one step further, the final future that one has is, in many ways, you could say a cemetery. And it's kind of maybe a, a, a dark kind of history to write. And so I'm not sure if I'm going to write an, an article on ethnic death, but there's a lot of ethnic death taking place in Buenos Aires. So there's a German cemetery. The history of that, there was, in, in this context of 19th century Buenos Aires, there was a dissident cemetery. So that's a, a cemetery for Protestants. Uh, and then uh, because of urban development, the city decides to make the Protestants, they need a new cemetery. So uh, right around 1910, they're, they're, the dissident cemetery is being moved to this brand new cemetery area on the edge of the city, uh, right as World War One breaks out. So what was going to be the brand new Protestant cemetery of, of Buenos Aires uh, becomes a separate, divided by a wall, a British cemetery and a German cemetery, uh, and closely connected to, um, in the case of the German cemetery, the city's Lutheran uh, church. And in fact, the Lutheran church has some of its institutions actually in that uh, at the door of that, the gate of that cemetery. Uh, but yeah, you go into the cemetery, and very many things about it uh, feel like a cemetery in Germany. Uh, there, there are some things that I think make it uh, different. One is, I mean, some of the gravestones are written in Spanish. Uh, there are definitely Jewish tombstones in this German cemetery. There are also the uh, German language Jewish tombstones in the British cemetery uh, just across the wall. So uh, Argentina has a very large had a very large German Jewish migration, particularly in the 1930s. Uh, it's the third biggest destination for Ger- German Jewish refugees uh, after the United States and Palestine. So Argentina, there's about 40,000, 30 or 40,000 German Jews who go specifically just in the 1930s to Buenos Aires. And some of those people... Uh, are buried not in the German cemetery, but in the neighboring British cemetery. And I'm sure they're also buried elsewhere. Uh, but you can take this further in addition to just German, uh, specifically German and, and British cemetery uh, in the broader Catholic cemetery that surrounds the German and British cemeteries. Um, all these mutual aid societies, which I mentioned earlier, which are in fact part of a, a new project I'm working on. Um, all of these uh, mutual aid societies, which are fundamentally organized or oriented or f- focused on providing healthcare services. The other big service that members got was 
burial in the in the mausoleum of the of the mutual aid society. So there is a Catalan, a Spanish, an Italian mausoleum, very impressive buildings that are burial grounds uh, on ethnic lines for the members of these associations. So people are organizing um, up until their final moment uh, along ethnic lines. Some people, not all people, of course, other people could care less about their their ethnic backgrounds, but a lot, a lot of people are organizing on ethnic lines. And I think it's another way to think about how how a culturally plural, markers of a culturally plural society and how a culturally plural society is organized in the case of organizing burial practices. And this gets to questions of religion as well and in terms of religious diversity and, and religious intolerance uh, as well. And so how we, how religion is being, uh, playing a role in creating separate cemeteries or not creating separate, separate cemeteries. And so anyway, that's a, another interest of mine, although I, I haven't written on it yet and I'm not sure what I will do with what I've just explained. But now, now I've, uh, <laughs> I've, I've published it in podcast forms. Maybe that can be the end of my, my thinking on ethnic deaths. Maybe, but I think you should do more because I think it's a really interesting subject. And I think that there's, there's beyond, beyond the sort of community and sort of ethnic issues, there are also um, aesthetic matters that are very fascinating. And of course, those are ethnic too, in certain ways. I mean, the fact that I said that the German cemetery in Quito, Ecuador looks very, very much, except for the, for the flora, um, looks very, very much like a German cemetery is very interesting. So, you know, of course, it's a, it's a particular interest of mine. And I, I certainly, I'm, I don't want to get in the business of, of, um, of telling other people what what they should spend their time researching and writing about, but I, for one, would find it very interesting. Well, I I, I, I think uh, I, th- I think you're onto something. I mean, I, I, you've already been onto something. I know you've uh, done great work on on this topic, and uh, I think uh, maybe I should be inspired by you. And in your very right, the the, the space of of these uh, the way ethnicity and and cemeteries are laid out. Uh, it, it, there is a certain a German cemetery has a bit of more of a feel of Central Europe and not of uh, Argentina in many ways. There's some things about it that are uh, uh, the, the calmness, even though even if the flora is different in terms of the specific trees, the the nature the the way nature is used in a cemetery in this case of the German cemetery and the British cemetery uh, is distinctly British and German and and not. Uh, Hispanic Argentine in many ways. So there's there's an element of uh, how that that greenery is playing a role in creating a uh, a bit of a an ethnic difference or a, a cultural persistence or cultural pluralism in, in the layout of in the groundskeeping of of the space. I think that's right. I think that's I think that's exactly right. Um, very 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 interesting stuff. So could you talk a little bit more about? Um, well, actually, this is something I wanted to ask. Uh, as a historian of migration. Do do you and having having written the book now, do you and having been yourself a person who's moved around quite a lot and having come yourself from you know being being a citizen of uh, of a country which has has um, historically been and continues to be of a, a very richly abundantly um, immigrant society, um, do you? Do you feel that that Argentina differs from other countries in terms of in terms of the broader history of immigration? Are there are there certain particularities about the ways that um, people immigrated to Argentina and the experiences that they had there that are different, say, from people who immigrated to Canada or somewhere else? Do, is there some is there some special quality about about the immigrant society that was created? I think in there is. I think there is. Um, uh, definitely some local variation. I, I think there's a lot of, you can make, I think you can make an argument about commonalities of, of 
cultures of, of cultural pluralism or countries of cultural pluralism across the Americas. Um, the, the dissertation from which this book came was actually a comparison of, of those, these topics, the topics of education and religion in Buenos Aires and Ontario. So in fact, what was my MA thesis interest continued to be my dissertation interest. Uh, and then in revising the book, this, so this might be a topic for another follow-up question, but the dissertation in this book are actually quite different. So the book has um, more chapters and then within the chapters, the, the book has figures in the chapters. So six out of the four out of the six chapters of the book were in my dissertation, um, but two were not. And there's a lot of new research in, in the chapters that did come from the dissertation and they compared Canada, Argentina. One idea I had when I was thinking of keeping the, the comparative nature of the, of the dissertation uh, and have a book about it. I was thinking of calling the book Regimes of Pluralism and thinking about the commonalities and the differences between two systems of how cultural pluralism develops on, in two different parts of the Americas. And then you could, of course, take that. I could have Regimes of Pluralism. This could be uh, 16 different places in the Americas or around the globe of how cultural pluralism is something very universal and something also very distinct. So one thing that um, uh, specifics of how Argentina, I think, is culturally is different, this, the the regime of pluralism, to use that, that idea that I had for a while and then have since booted, but now I'm publishing it in podcast form. It's great. This is, I should go on podcasting more often. Um, is um, that, I mean, there's just some, some basic facts of how the state interacted with immigrant communities. So the state allowed far more space in Argentina than it did in the United States and Canada for immigrant communities to do things. And that then really affected how, how, how a community developed and how a cult, a society became and became culturally plural and how it stayed culturally plural in different ways. So a very simple example is that in Canada, the United States, uh, in areas where there was lots of immigrants of a simple, single background, those immigrants could get themselves uh, elected to local school boards and local school boards up until around 1900, 1910, um, could, uh, teach that that dominant other language other than English, so say German or, or Polish or wherever the region was that that uh, had a, a lot of immigrants from one place, could teach those foreign languages in public schools and in a way way more than just as a second language. It could be actually a somewhat bilingual school uh, in Chicago or in rural uh, rural Ohio. You could have these semi-German schools um, in within the public system. Uh, and at the same time, you could not have private schools that just on their own accord had some state regulation that wrote final exams for the, the exit exam of grade of elementary school, but totally outside the state system. So immigrants in North America were, in, in the case of education, uh, had to be brought in into the public system. And then within that public system, uh, other languages than English were allowed some space to encourage the children, or to teach the children of immigrants in, in certain ways, uh, foster bilingualism. So you say there was sort of state-sanctioned bilingualism in public schools uh, across North America it, up until the, the First World War, at least. Um, in Argentina, no language other than Spanish was ever allowed to be taught in public schools. Uh, so it's actually a, a, a harsh system of, of stamping out cultural pluralism. And at the same time, the Argentine state was very happy to allow uh, immigrant-run pi uh, private schools to teach actually way more uh, foreign language content and, and foreign country content, like more information about a foreign place, um, as long as they also um, abided by uh, in growing amounts of state regulation, but that never amounted to more than about 30% of the curriculum um, up until at least 1930. So it's a, so the way the state is interacting, educational policies are interacting with an immigrant community is then, in a sense, you could say creating a different kind of cultural plural society, because one society is 
encourage one way in Argentina they're encouraging organization along ethnic lines, and if if people those who want to organize along ethnic lines and pay for uh, private education for their children um, can successfully foster cultural pluralism quite effectively because they have a lot of control over that um, private school system. In the case of North America, uh, it's whatever cultural pluralism that is going to be fostered through education is going to be done uh, much more under state control. And so as a result, uh, any German school, German language education that took place in Ohio in 1890 was way less than you'd find in Buenos Aires in 1890 or 1920 um, because of the nature of state regulation, state funding, and ideologies of, of, of citizenship and, and language policies and things like that. And another thing, and this is one thing that I thought about as a citizen of Canada, citizen of what today we call a multicultural society. It wasn't a, a word that was used uh, in, in English or in Spanish 100 years ago. Um, so, so the academic term that's commonly used is cultural pluralism. The way multiculturalism or cultural pluralism was thought about 100 years ago in Buenos Aires is a little bit different than um, in the United States or Canada uh, at the same time. So the reason the Argentines, there's a bit more of a binary of either or, either you're Argentine or you're German. This would be a, a common way that cultural pluralism was thought about in, in Buenos Aires in 1910. And so since you're German and not Argentine, then you're sort of given a bit more space to do German things. You're, you're, even though this child is an Argentine citizen, if somehow they have not been fully assimilated and, and part of the, the Argentine sort of homogeneous vision of nation that these government elites wanted, uh, they, there was a bit more allowance for them to be then part of a German community and the sort of either or binary of assimilated or European foreigner uh, created a different kind of uh, ethnic landscape in the city in, in a way that in North America, similar categories could be used about, uh, you know, either be American or, or don't be American or, you know, you need to become American and you're not American if you're not doing certain things. Uh, the way it was talked about and thought about in Argentina, I think, was a bit more binary than you'd find in Anglo-North America. And as a result, that, uh, that created a different kind of uh, cultural plural society. You, you explained earlier um, your your. The, the time frame of your book, which again, just to repeat for listeners, is the 1880s to the 19 to the 1930s. Um, I want the only, one thing I wondered, I and and of, and of course your your explanation for that was was um, was a very good one. Um, that your explanation was just to repeat again uh, that you're using a time frame that makes sense within Argentine history. I wonder. The only thing I wondered about. Um, and maybe you can just say a little bit about this if it if it strikes your fancy, because there was such an enormous influx of immigrants into Argentina um, again in the forties. Um, what would the story be different if you had extended the book by another chapter? And if so, how would it have been different? Or what what other sorts of themes might have been pursued at that point? Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting question uh, on the, the two ways because yeah. It, the history of immigration and migration to and from Argentina from, say, 1930 to 1960, uh, in, you could say it took on a different tone. Um, and at the same time, the, the history of German language, German-speaking migration in that time period was different. And But both of those, I would sort of, again, be striking a balance between uh, is this a story of German migration or a story of migration uh, and German, as my, German speakers as my case study. Um, so a very quick overview so between 1880 and 1930, there are about 100,000 German speakers that come to Argentina. Uh, they are from the German Empire, but also from uh, 
four other places. So there's some are, there's some Swiss, there's some Austro-Hungarian uh, imperial citizens, and there are a lot of uh, Russian citizens from the Russian Empire as well, particularly in the case of Argentina from the Volga region of, of Russia. So these sort of four passports that people could have when they arrived in Argentina before 1918 or before 1914. Um, and so I use this term German speakers. It's in many ways, there's a strong focus on, on German citizens. Uh, German citizens are often the ones that are leading uh, sort of German community institutions, but there it's a, it's an ambiguous category of who's being involved in these institutions. And it's by, by no means only a, uh, a German citizen history uh, and German speakers themselves often use the term German speakers. So they often use the term Germans and German speakers. They often talk about serving both Germans and German speakers at the same time. And that was their goal. And in a sort of, I think that's an example of how they, they had a uh, ethno-linguistic understanding of, of, of themselves and how that would fit into Argentine citizenship or Argentine belonging. And that's uh, part of the, the, the play I have there with Argentine citizenship and, and, and being German in some way. So there's 100,000 to come between 1880 and 1930. And then in the 1940s, there are about between 40, so I guess particularly 1933 to 1945, and really 1941 or 1942, uh, there are approximately 50,000 German speakers from Germany and Austria, so Nazi Germany, uh, depending on the time, uh, who who come to Argentina, and about 30,000 of those 40 to 50,000 are uh, German Jews. Um, so there's another, say, 50, so there's 100,000 up until 1930. There's about 50,000 uh, in the Nazi period. And then from 45 to 55, there's another 40,000 um, uh, German-speaking migrants. Again, the, those displaced persons uh, from Central and Eastern Europe are also a large or significant part of those 40,000. So the, the, a broader history would include these I mean, more people, transformations in, in uh, migratory waves. Uh, there would be these two extra topics that would definitely come up in a book about the later periods. One would be German Jewish refugees, and there's this whole, there, and there's a historiography on this of um, conflicts between various groups of people. Of, so Buenos Aires is a city in the 1930s and 1940s uh, that, uh, in many ways, uh, Nazi th- sympathies are, are exhibited. But it's also one of the biggest sites of Nazi resistance in, in, in the Americas or in the world at the same time. So there are these two big newspapers. One is doesn't seem to have any, or a big, big, big supporter, a, a nationalist newspaper, a big supporter of the Nazi regime. And then there's one that's adamantly opposed and denouncing the Nazi uh, regime uh, through the 1930s and 1940s. So there's a history there of um, these sort of competing Germanies. And there's a, a great book coming out soon and, and uh, a recent dissertation on this topic of, of competing Germanies uh, in Buenos Aires and how there's these two worlds that came together or clashed or, or lived separate from each other in 1930s Buenos Aires. Um, and then there'll be the 1945 to 55 period that you'd also look at, uh, which includes both war criminals or um, people somehow involved in uh, uh, in the Holocaust, but also a lot of displaced persons who had various relationships with um, um, with the Holocaust and World War II. Uh, and and of course, I think it seems to me that Argentina. The, when you say Germans in Argentina, when I when I tell people, when I told people I was writing a dissertation about Germans in Argentina, everyone said, "Oh, Nazis." Uh, that was sort of the go to thing about Germans in Argentina, and. That would be definitely a, a wise thing to include as a subject of analysis if I was running a book from that included up until about 1960. Um, but it would also be something that I would broaden to focus on these other kinds of migration. At the same time, uh, just to 
de-Germanize this, that story if I did write another 30 years of history into this book or in a sequel. Um, there's this, this time of massive transformation in Argentine society. In many ways, the book is more about ethnicity than it is about migration. So it's how ethnicity plays out once on the ground and how communities are developed and, and what Argentine citizens of, of, in this case, German heritage, uh, think about Germany and, and community and things like that. So one thing that really would change, change my story is, uh, in addition to all that migration taking place that I've just described, I would be uh, Peronism and populist politics in Argentina from 1946 to 1955. So again, fall, would fall right into that period. Um, in the 90s, so in the 1940s, 1950s, the Argentine state, uh, massively expands one area that really uh, becomes involved in is social welfare institutions so any interest that i have that the book would have on on social welfare institutions is a central part of the community uh, these institutions are uh under attack the wrong word uh their their significance in relation to other kinds of uh involvement in in social welfare is greatly diminished as a result of a, a rising welfare state in argentina after 1946 uh so involvement in mutual aid societies and, thing, uh, and, and work placement and things like that uh, was transformed because of a, an, uh, a rising, uh, the rising influence of a state or a more activist state in, uh, in playing a bigger role in society rather than a laissez-faire liberal state that, you, that defines the period that I'm studying of 1880 to 1930. Uh, so both of those things would make for, I think it would have to be more than just one or two more chapters uh, because of the, this, uh, the second Argentine elements of things that changed as well, in addition to the migration of German speakers. Uh, so it would make for a great uh, second or third or two more books uh, on the topic. <laughs> yes, I think so too. I, listening to you talk about that, I want to read about this. So, um, so I think maybe somewhere down the line, uh, maybe somewhere down the line, this is something that you might pursue because I, I, I truly think it's fascinating. I, I wonder if on that note, uh, we've, we've taken up a lot of your time and I really appreciate having the, these few minutes to talk to you because the work that you've done is just absolutely fascinating. And actually listening to you talk about it is, is, is um, in some ways even better. There are things that it seems like came out in your conversation that were... Um, that you know maybe were that I don't that I don't remember reading about. So so in other words, if people will now go out and read the book and read the book in a sort of conversation with the podcast, they'll get all sorts of of even more interesting de details um, than the ones that are in the book. Uh, I wonder if on that note, oh yeah, absolutely. I um, I was just going to say I of the pod the new books in history podcast that I've listened to of books that I've already read. Uh, I would agree with you. It's, it's it's an amazing other medium that you can hear the author zooming in or elaborating on a point or because, you know, the author spent five or eight minutes talking about a single point of the book. Uh, it might have come out uh, in reading, but uh, it might have come out even better listening to it. And the two combined in dialogue with one another as quite a, an effective way to understand a book and understand an author's ideas, I think. So I think what you guys are doing with these podcasts are quite is quite helpful for, for readers. That's lovely. Thank you very much. And I hope people will take your advice because I, I do think that, you know, for the listeners, and I'm sure many of many of them do what you and I do, which is you hear about a book, you listen to the podcast a bit, and then you and then you go and read the book. And I think that that really is the combination of the two things really is a unique kind of experience of of new scholarship. Um, I wonder if on this note, though, if we could ask you about new projects, because, of course, between the two of us, we've We've given you several ideas for new projects, some of which you had already thought of yourself, maybe some new ones that 
came into the frame uh, through through our conversation. But I, I know that you're already working on lots of different things. So maybe you could tell some of what you're working on. Yeah, uh, the um, I think it's a dangerous question to ask an academic what what uh, he or she is working on now because you can. Uh, First, you'll get the multiple projects answer, which will you know occupy as much time as this entire podcast up until now. the 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 main thing I'm working on, and that I, you know, that I've got the what will be the thing that would have money to hire graduate students for the thing that my the, my university and, and the Canadian government are pay, paying money for um, are is a project on uh, health and migration in Buenos Aires. So in the book, it, it grows out of a, a small interest in the book which was on this thing called the German hospital. So this major German language institution in Buenos Aires um, was a central, played a central role in the German community of Buenos Aires. And it got a lot of money and treated a lot of patients and had a lot of interesting things about class dynamics between the wealthy who were donating money and then the other goal being serving working class uh, German speaking immigrants. Uh, but I'm working on a book though. And the other, the other thing that came out from that first project was the, this interest in, in engaging with broader, broader trends in the historiography of, not doing a case study of a single group uh, for just so we can learn more about a single group, which is is a great thing, but it's also very important to connect that single group's history to the broader landscape of what's going on in society. So you can learn more about Argentina or more about immigration when when learning about German speakers in Argentina. Uh, and with that in mind, uh, I'm uh, so the project I'm working on now is on every immigrant group in the city of Buenos Aires that played a role that played a role in healthcare services uh, and uh, whether it's the circulation of medical knowledge or paying for healthcare or providing healthcare services uh, along ethnic lines in the similar time period, in my case now from 1880 to 1955, which then includes this transformative period of Peronism and populism and in mid-20th century Argentina. Uh, so it's, the thing about the striking about Buenos Aires still today um, is that there's uh, hospitals all over the city in addition to you know a, a state hospital named after such and such a politician or a catholic hospital named after such and such a thing uh there are a bunch of hospitals with names like the british hospital the french hospital the spanish hospital the galician center which is a hospital the italian hospital the german hospital the syrian lebanese hospital uh the jewish hospital and in many ways i mean you see this in in uh today you see this in north american cities with jewish hospitals and in the past there were uh Things like uh, there was German hospitals in, in New York City and in uh, Philadelphia. There was a Swedish hospital in Chicago. So the idea, though, of, of organizing healthcare services along ethnic lines is something that is you could say, common across the Americas, but very pronounced in Buenos Aires. So that immigrants played a very a fundamental role in healthcare services. In fact, in 1910, uh, the five hospitals that existed, that the ethnic hospitals that existed at that time, treated 20% of all the patients in the city. So these are, if you look at them together, rather than as a, a history of of German immigrants or history of a German hospital or of a British hospital in the city, look at history of uh, various migrant groups and healthcare. Uh, it's sort of a way of understanding a broader social history of healthcare and medicine in, Ar in Argentine or Buenos Aires society. So it's looking at uh, various groups of immigrants and how they uh, uh, organized a lot of ethnic activities and community activities uh, to provide healthcare services and in so doing carved out a certain space for ethnicity and cultural pluralism uh, alongside the state, the Catholic Church, and uh, Spanish-speaking philanthropists. So that's, uh, broadly speaking, what I'm working on. Sounds amazing. Um, I, I, well, I, I won't bore people by, by, telling, by telling our audience yet another thing that you and I now have in common. I won't do that. Um, but what I will say is this. I have, been, uh, I have had the enormous pleasure this afternoon of speaking with Benjamin Bryce, 
Uh, Benjamin Bryce is assistant professor of history at the University of Northern British Columbia, and he has written a wonderful book, To Belong in Buenos Aires, Germans, Argentines, and the Rise of a Pluralist Society. It was published just this year, 2018, with Stanford University Press. And I urge all of you, particularly those of you who have interests in the history of Latin America, the history of cultural pluralism, multiculturalism, the history of migration broadly, and the history of Germany, all of you, I think you will find something very fascinating about this book. Ben, Bryce, it has really been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me and to the listeners for uh, listening to our conversation. It's great. Thanks, Ben. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.